I am delighted uh, to have Tim Wilson on board. Look, he will be a household name uh, to many of you for his work. Uh, used to be part a writer, journalist uh, for Metro Magazine. He's been on television. He's an author, many claims to fame. One of the most sartorial men uh, that I know in uh, New Zealand, not necessarily oh, today. You keep talking that way, you silver-tongued yeah. devil, and people will be <laughs> demanding a, a video with this, and I'm very glad they're not demanding a video with this, Simon, so let's, let's keep it moving. But also a man who has what I find one of the best uh, whips, but among other claims to fame at the moment uh, is that he is the chief executive in the lead at the Maxim Institute. So, Tim, great to have you along. And uh, great, great to be with you. And um, yeah, it's it's an absolute privilege to be executive director of Maxim Institute. Uh, it's a, it's an organisation that really, really cares about making our country a better place and helping leaders make wise decisions. And I know that all sounds a bit like uh, a bit like uh, corporate, um, I don't know, corporate uh, flannel, but it's actually it, it's actually true. I stepped into into the role because uh, I wanted to do something. Um, I guess more, more durable and deeper than uh, I was called on to do. And this is not to denigrate broadcast journalism, but I'm just saying the opportunities uh, aren't always there. So it's great to be with you today. We might actually tease that out because for some of my listeners, they'll need to understand what Maxim is and the work you do. But again, you've been a broadcaster. You, you've travelled the world. You've, you've written copious amounts of articles from the serious to the sublime and the fun and everything in between. One would argue that's an amazing platform, but you're saying that actually you felt drawn to, well, the sorry, executive director's uh, role at Maxim. I mean, was that quite a transition going from journalist to director? Yeah, yeah, it, it really was. And um, it was a learning curve. I had, to, you know, you, um, it was, it's, I've, I guess I've had several learning curves though during, um, uh, I was about to say what passes for my career. I think I've gone from different thing to different thing to different thing. Um, and uh, going from broadcast, uh, broad, being a broadcaster slash broadcast journalist to uh, Maxim, um, there's a whole lot of different skills that you need to acquire. So Maxim is a uh, public policy and research think tank. Uh, we, as I said, we help leaders make wise decisions, but we care about informing the engaged public as well. That's one of the um, one of the reasons I'm talking to you, Simon. You know, your podcast, by golly. People are highly. I couldn't imagine a a a more engaged group of people. I imagine um, um, the the social media will be burning down right now with this conversation. Um, but uh, <laughs> but the thing, I guess, the thing was that um, Maxim's yeah, Maxim's. A, there's there's a duration. I guess a duration issue when it comes to dealing with something, um, say in in the broadcast sphere in the news, uh, and whereas in Maxim we do research that takes months to get done. Uh, we have to pick the topics well. We have to uh, take time. We listen, which is, sure, broadcast, uh, broadcast uh, you know, in, in the media, that's part of the gig is to listen. But to actually, to actually pause to shut up and listen, uh, that, I found that quite hard, um, funnily enough. And, and, and then and then we ask questions, and so it's a, it's a, I guess it's a longer, um, more durable in many ways format. I mean, it's fascinating, you know, the timelines. Um, in uh, say, for example, a sh the show I used to work on, Seven Sharp, I'd turn a story around 
in a day and expect, uh, you know, the response would be when I looked at the ratings the next day. Um, we've just had um, we've just had an instance where several months after releasing a piece of research, uh, a minister personally called one of our researchers and said, oh, that's a great piece of research. Why don't you come and see me in a couple of weeks? So the the wheels turn at a different tempo, but I think they, um, you know, when, you, when you're in that uh, public policy and politics sphere, there's the ability to ha- to affect um, some real and lasting change. But it, it's a long game, as I'm sure you're you're well aware in your role. Yeah, well, I often talk, certainly in, in politics, it's, it's like moving a super tanker, like a big mm. oil super tanker. It takes a while to, to turn. And I've certainly seen some of my colleagues sort of crash mixing bad metaphors here at the moment, um, who expect that it's like a jet boat. You just come on here with a great idea and boom, um, it happens. It it generally doesn't. But, I mean, when I think of your work, particularly in the the journalistic, it's had Shivan Sharp, um, fast turnaround, fast paced. You know, Mm. the story today is gone tomorrow. I mean, what's the adjustment been like going to a much more thoughtful think tank? I mean, you're literally talking here months, sometimes years, I could imagine, of just slowly bringing ideas to people. I mean, is that... Just an extension of the way you've worked, or well, I think it's it, it, there was a desire for that, and um, I have to say there were some people um, um, around the organisation who are like, "What the heck are you picking this schmuck for?" Um, but I, I would, I would also, um, and I counterbalance counterbalance that with the note that I started uh, in journalism, writing five thousand word articles for magazines like Metro, like North and South. Uh, I written um, three novels so I'm, I'm, I'm I actually am very comfortable with the long form um, and I had to learn the discipline by coming into TV uh, and radio of crystallization and um, I have great respect for those people who are able to crystallize accurately uh, and 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 the kind of mental agility that is required to go with it. So I'll just put that there. In terms of the the cultures, very different cultures, say from a newsroom to a think tank. Um, in a newsroom, it's uh, it's it's as you say, it's quick turnaround. Let's get what we get. We've got a deadline by this, you know, by the end of the day. Um, and at times, we used to have to rip up the lead story at three p.m. and we'd be going on air at seven uh, seven p.m. Uh, whereas um, it's a, I'm really it's a, pleased, actually, that Seven Sharp was truthful. Yeah. It, it would always start at Seven Sharp. It would have been slightly <laughs> embarrassing if it had been 6.55 or 10 past 7. But, yeah, oh, sorry, I've interrupted your flow. Yeah, yeah, no, if it's like, um, you know, it's, it's it's 10 past 7 and the, you know, or shall we say 5 past 7 and the, the, the credits aren't running and TVNZ's playing poker music, you know there's a problem. Um, but, um, but as opposed to, um, you know, the, I guess think tank culture is like it's not uh, – Often it's very, or it seems when you're in the moment, quite self-evident what the story of the day is, whereas um, you can pick a topic, but it's like, so what's the question we want to ask here? What's a fertile area of inquiry? And that can, that in itself will take uh, researchers uh, weeks to figure out what's the right, what's, what's, what is it that we're trying to grasp here? Um, so, for example, uh, we, we took... Uh, quite a lot of time, the, the recent paper we did on COVID and the Constitution, which uh, mm. measures the constitutional um, 
uh, ramifications of some of the COVID response, it was really crucial to ask the right question so that we could get the right kind of answers. And I, I know that's, um, that may sound to some people like, oh, what a faff. Uh, I guess in a way it's, it's, it's deep thinking and, and in a sense that in itself is quite countercultural. We have a, um, uh, we're in a moment where we've almost got, to, well, not almost, we, we fundamentally now have too much information. I think people's appetites uh, for information uh, are becoming more shallow at the time when their appetites for the right kind of information should actually be deepening. Because if we don't ask ourselves the right questions, we won't come up with the right answers. And if we don't come up with the right answers, people will suffer. Well, I often talk about uh, we have a lot more information in this age than we ever have, but not necessarily knowledge. In mm. fact, there's quite a distinction between information and knowledge. But you've highlighted certainly one of the paradoxes that occasionally, maybe the word occasionally is the, the op operational word here, but, yeah, mm. we we need deeper thought, particularly after crises like the mm. likes of COVID. Um, yeah. And yet we are driven more by Twitter, by, a, was it 240 characters now, whatever it is. That, yeah. that seems to be the level of our discourse so there is quite a paradox there's a there's a greater need and i find it here in parliament i'll, I'll be honest without me talking too much when i came mm. here i thought i'd have time to not literally sit back with a pipe with a glass of whiskey and ponder life's imponderables but mm. there's almost excuse the french bugger all time to sit down and think you're, mm. you're chasing your tail and yet this should be the place to do so and as i say mm. with society with its questions doesn't matter if it's COVID, the constitution the economy our social fabric we should be deeply discussing this, but we don't. In fact, we are Twitter-level conversations, which are not conversations at all. I mean, how do we marry these up? How do we actually not even marry them up? How do we draw society back to fuller, deeper, meaningful conversations? Yeah. 240 words or less. No. 240 words or less. Look, I, I, I think... Um, I think organisations like Maxim have to exist. We're... Um, uh, we're independent, so it's not as if we are kowtowed by by contracts to um, to do research on behalf of um, organisations that will pay us lots of money, and then maybe we'll sort of be mealy mouth. So I think an independence of thought is a big part of that, and um, and I, I I don't merely mean uh, uh, non-conformity because often there's nothing more conformist than self-proclaimed non-conformity. Um, but I think uh, in terms of um, um, you know, maintaining an independent position, it's like so, and that's a discipline to try to, to think for yourself. Like, do I accept, um, because I would say, do I accept what's being said here? So, for example, when you're talking about Twitter, uh, it's not just the brevity. I'm not a, I, I don't, um, uh, I actually have a respect for brevity as long as there's been some, intellectual work done to help with, I think the word I used before was crystallization. So as, as long as something's been well crystallized, I actually can see uh, a certain amount of intellectual work done. But it's the extremity uh, that's associated with platforms like Twitter that I think is, um, is extremely problematic. And uh, I've been digging into a book recently by a guy called Ben Sass. Are you familiar with um, Ben Sass? He's a US senator. And the book's called Them. And it's about, um, it, it, the subtitle is um, Why We Hate Each Other and Why We Need to Heal. And um, he's looking at the American scene, but what he notes, which is really interesting, um, is that when, 
is is that what generates responses are anger and extremity. He's talking about the polit- what he calls politainment with uh, cable news, uh, but also that's equally applicable to uh, social media. Uh, and so it's often the more extreme position that will get cut through and cut through um, will the algorithm um, will feed that. And so uh, even if you're, you know, you, you're torn, and we are torn because I think we've become more performative as a society too. So just at the point where we need to um, actually deeply and slowly and gently engage with ideas, we are, we are on these platforms that speed them up, that reward performativeness and, uh, and extremity. And and that is that that's that that's sickening our body politic. I, I don't think it'll surprise you that I, I tend to agree. I haven't actually read uh, Ben's book, so I'm going to have to look look that up and add that to my um, list. But I, I, I by the nightstand, yeah, yeah. Well, at the moment, I seem to have a lot of Russian and German history, which is probably not all that useful to my political work. But um, yeah, how, how are you kidding? You that would be that would be a handbook for where you are. Come on, are you this is just what you need. Throw some Dostoevsky in there as well and you'll get some insights into human behaviour and you'll be absolutely set. Oh, actually, a great fan of Dostoevsky. No, unfortunately, I'm reading about the Romanovs um, and the uh, Kaiser Wilhelm and that. That's probably not good models to bring into the modern parliament. I might just put that out there for a moment. It doesn't end well for either of them. <laughs> no, no, I certainly hope it's not. This is not prophetic reading, let's put it that way. No, that's right. Hey, well, as you say, I, I do worry about the level of discourse and we've certainly seen from other thinkers, writers and opiners that the likes of Twitter, any of the social medias uh, do tend to reward each other. But I use the term shrill. The more shrill you become, the more extreme uh, is what, as you say, garners attention. And then it has to, you have to even go further to be the next person to be seen. Uh, I mean, again, how do we actively pull that back? You know, you're at the heart of a a think tank, how do we draw it back? Because this gets rewarded um, yeah. and it's not to pick on your former profession and, and actually I can pick on politicians too, but we quote people in Twitter. You pick up the newspapers and it's got Bob and Mary who've yeah. said something explosive. You know, who the hell are these people uh, and why does it matter? But we sort of yeah. drive it. Yeah, we, we do. So um, I think we need, uh, we need to affirm the institutions that we have. Um, our democratic institutions, our constitutional arrangements, which are also in some sense institutional, uh, and, um, and 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 the institutions in and around government. Um, so, for example, in the the paper that that um, our research fellow Alex Pink and ex CEO of Maxim um, produced, uh, one of the one of one of the observations that was made is that and, we, and we're looking at this um, this polarization this extremity uh, now what Alex de- determined was and he studied a, um, a sort of a number of um, of let's say apertures into the questions so um, court cases um, laws passed etc um, very detailed paper and, um, and 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 well worth um, you know if you're time pressed read the executive summary on um, the website www.maxim.org.nz. But what I can hand on heart say I've I've read it actually. I follow Hmm. your papers with, uh, or your team's papers with, and that in particular, the word constitutional to me is just like one of those things. Oh, yes, tell me more. (laughs) 
Well, exactly. And 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 what was he? I mean, the, the use, for example, the use of urgency to get um, to get to turn bills into legislation. Um, the the speed at which it happened, the use of the word unprecedented, which meant that we we're in a supposedly in a completely new um, environment. When in fact, uh, I think extraordinary would, as Alex concludes, extraordinary would have been more accurate. All of those things eroded some of our constitutional safeguards. The railings have been pushed back. So when the railings around the institutions um, that that hold us together, and they do hold us together. Uh, when those uh, are, are removed, uh, you know, if people in where you're sitting in Parliament aren't following the rules, how the hell are people on the street going to follow the rules? Because leaders lead by example. I'm not. I'm not reproaching you. I'm. I'm. I'm saying we no, are I'm taking notes. <laughs> no, we are all connected, and we. We. I think. I think that the, some of those th those platforms that we were talking about earlier, and also extremism, extremity, shrillness, um, brevity, that's not wisely come to. That all disconnects us from each other. So anything that does that and and doesn't attend to our necessary relationality, which is reflected through our constitutional arrangements, for example, um, that. That is dangerous. So we need to affirm those constitutional arrangements. We need to say, hey, is this actually unprecedented or is it just extraordinary? If so, uh, we need to be able to discuss things. We need to be able to debate things. And we need to be able to do so in a reasonable uh, and, and rational way. We're very big at Maxim about uh, disagreeing agreeably, which, and this is where you can, you can jump in and say, I disagree. Um, but but it means it like a Monty Python sketch. If I it did. would, it would take it somewhere it doesn't need to go. Right. But it means, um, and, and and one of the one of the things that we we advise is uh, follow follow someone on social media whom you absolutely disagree with, and don't troll them. Just listen to them. Shut up. Um, expand your circles. One of the um, one of the uh, one of the people that we're um, who helps us with this is a guy called Alan Jacobs, who talks about get to know people that you can have uh, uh, a disagreement with, an argument with, and still stay friends. Make make don't make mates who are like minded. Make mates who are like hearted, so that you can then you know you you're affirming relationships. You're affirming the fact that this person uh, has some of the truth, and if we listen and we and we talk and we speak reasonably. Um, then perhaps we might learn something. And in learning something, we're connected uh, to um, to that person a bit more. Well, amongst other things, you've tapped something that resonates with me, that um, everyone has, a, if you will, a kernel of truth in what they're saying. So, yes. you know, I have political agreements with, you know, surprise, surprise, the Green Party. But actually, mm -hmm. I do listen to them and I, uh, mm -hmm. because you know, I'd say most of what they say I disagree with, but there's often something good within it and you can learn i think from it although i would yeah. admit politics has become i think you use the term performative and i wouldn't mind you just teasing it out but i think parliament's become that way a little bit it's it's not really about the substance it's about how you say something how you yeah. get the quick cheap headline um, how you've got it what you're actually intended to do isn't as important as the yeah the, the performance of it but how would you explain performative Oh, yeah, it, it is about um, garnering attention. Let's put it that way. So it's like I'm it, I'm not saying something because I believe it's true 
or I believe it's necessary. I'm saying something because I believe I'm going to get heard. Uh, and, and look, there is a certain amount of that in any public role, but it's how we balance it with our interactions with other people and, and also being able to convey the truth in a way that actually embodies that truth that we want to um, that we want to convey. So, for example, if we're calling for more civil discussion, um, we certainly can't um, we certainly can't do it by screaming at the top of our lungs. That's not going to be helpful. Um, but if we you know if 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 we do so, we probably have to um, build some coalitions like uh, like you agreeing with with the Green Party, for example, and 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 be able to embody that. Before we um, before we start calling for it, I suppose something I struggle with. I don't say not so much myself. I'm not the biggest media celebrity, but actually, um, yelling at the top of one's lungs does seem to get rewarded. I've been struck in my select committee work over the years that MPs across the house, for example, be working very hard, diligently delving in to detail, but the dramatic, rhetorical fancifulness of, of one MP or two. Mm. That's what captures attention. Again, there's not much substance, but they just made a lot of noise. That mm. that gets uh, rewarded, and it, it is yeah. frustrating, I must admit. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, um, I, th- I, 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 I will say that um, again. I, I will go back to. Ac- I'm, I'm not opposed to accurate crystallization, whereby you know, I guess my my. Um, my interest in words, my interest in um, in you know the nature of of various media um, means that I think it, that that you have to be able to if you if you're if you're sufficiently committed to what you believe is the truth coming across. And um, I would I would argue that um, for example, political leaders their license to operate. Uh, rests on the assent of the engaged public. So you are attempting to uh, renew your licence every time you speak publicly. Um, but to do that in a way um, that actually draws people to the truth, not re- not makes it somehow repellent, you know, not 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 diverse. It's like, oh, they said this. Well, that makes me feel, they said X, so this makes me feel Y. No, if, if it can be directive so for example you know social media it should twitter is actually a great way to put you in touch with a lot of thinkers and it's a great informational medium in some way so is tiktok uh tiktok is increasingly become and let's put aside the, the whole chinese data concerns um but yeah. it is more um, minor minor concern Don't well, I'm, yeah. I, I, I'm flagging it but i'm saying you know that's for you to resolve with your it person but tiktok is also an informational medium uh, in in many respects as well, and so it's it's also how young people get a lot of their information. So, um, so so you need to be aware of the constraints of the medium, and in some respects, you know that those headlines, uh, they're necess- the, you know that they are necessary because they're again encapsulations of what's being said. But if they distract, if they turn out to be road cones or red lights, then turn you away from the truth. Then that's not that's not going to work. Therein lies a big challenge, though, isn't it? In my mind, in that you've talked a couple of times here about information. doesn't matter if it's mm-hmm. TikTok, um, yeah. Twitter, wherever. Lots and lots of information. I certainly see it um, even in my own family. Lots of information, but how do they know how to process it towards truth or to, mm-hmm. to some sense of my earlier word, knowledge? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And you can use the word truth. This is a safe space, Simon. Go oh, ahead. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm pleased that's been declared. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am someone who does believe in truth. Um, and in yeah. fact, I think, you know, the moment that any, speaking philosophically, it mm. doesn't mean that we know exactly what it is, but I think all humans, certainly as we think, philosophize, mm. are heading towards some sense of truth. And I'm not trying to be a yeah. relativist there. No, no, I would say I, w- I would say objective truth is um, um, uh, a, a great a great encapsulation of the counter view, which is like you know um, that um, that somewhat I, I think it's a, a sort of uh, somewhat idle-minded, elegant disdain, which says you have your truth, I have mine, um, which is it's actually a universalist truth claim assertion. Because the assertion that you all have, everyone has their own private truth uh, is as much of a truth claim as saying there is one truth and we're attempting to apprehend it in, um, in, in the, the, the fallible and often disconnected way that we're, we're still trying to apprehend it. Absolutely. I mean, I sit within a philosophical tradition that says there is objective truth and we're always grasping for it. That's the whole the whole point, yeah. and it won't surprise you or any of my listeners. I've got no time for sort of the relativistic. Yeah, it's all my truth. Mm. Oh God, give me a break. Well, uh, of I course, think, I, think, I will listen. I'll listen to it with respect, but still. Yeah, but I, I think I think the challenge, if you're saying, "Well, you've got your truth, I've got my, my truth," then is like, well, how do you actually connect uh, with that person if you have entirely different truths? Whereas, if you're looking at um, objective truth, you're able to say, "Well, here's the uh, here's the anchor." If you like, now where do we stand in relation to that anchor? Where where are we? So it does allow, I would I would submit a, a greater, you know, I just I just hate the phrase a greater level of um, understanding of our relational nature. I hate the phrase "you do you." You know what? Don't do you. Um, I I I did me for a long time until I got so sick of me. I had to stop doing me, shut up, and do some listening for a while. And it's actually very good for you. Oh, and on that note, no, no, I'm kidding. Um, but no, it is. It is. It's phenomenally so. I mean, look, this would take us down a whole level of, and uh, not level, a whole area of narcissism in terms of just self-absorbed. Um, mm. I mean, I've often uh, joked somewhat darkly about people who go around saying, "Who, who am I?" It's like a sort of the teenager sitting in front of the the mirror, permanently asking mm. that question. It's like actually engage with others, and you learn more about exactly. yourself. Or, um, or actually. Um Sub in in in, in it's, it's it's possibly um, somewhat controversial, but submit to others who are perhaps wiser and whom you can discern wisdom, and you will learn who you are um, by using them as a as the mirror, rather than if you if you're looking at yourself, all you're going to see is yourself. But we get this is getting this is getting deep. I'm loving it. Oh, it's the, it's the world. I um. I, I inhabit. I love, love philosophy, and actually, there's a lot of where at times the um, the podcast goes. But these these are the it actually links back to where we started, Tim, which is we need good, solid, deep conversation. It's not just the glib, quick 240 characters. Unless, of course, you're one of these people who I am not, who can crystallize ideas. Um, it it just makes a a big difference just to tease mm. tease out concepts and have that. Well, it's it's the old Aristotelian adage, you know, the unreflected life is not worth having. Yes. Um, we don't want to have to think through our experiences and share them with others. And just riffing off one point you raised, for me, and it's as much a, a point to those listening, there's no point in debating with others their ideas if you don't understand your own. You know, if you're one of these new age 
overly progressive, I would suggest, you know, any truth goes, well, you're never going to have a proper conversation because you don't know who you are. So to be you, be you. But if you don't know who you are and what you believe in and why, you can't, I would argue, have a good proper conversation with other people. Um, are you are you saying okay? So what? Are you, for example, being mindful of the papa or the genealogy of a, of of the ideas that you're holding, and and being able to um, interrogate those. I, I think so. It's twofold. It's certainly that you need to have a, a, a sense of the heritage, the lineage, the papa as you say. Um, but also, um, if you're going to debate a topic of meaning, if you don't have a position yourself, you can't have a conversation. If, if you're just flapping in the wind, there is no conversation. You need to know. Yeah, yeah. I think I your argument is for it's it's it and and this is something that we that we do see a bit is that moral positions or philosophic positions are formed on the basis of sentiment, and 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 feelings change. Um, but having 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 said that, there is an asset. There is a there is certainly a, a utility that sentiment has in in, in framing um, some of your moral or philosophic responses. But it can't be the foundation. And I think that's very um, that's very um, that's very problematic. And I think that um, I would submit that um, a lot a lot of people these days they do they do frame their um, their positions on the basis of well, this feels like the right thing. To say or do, um, but um, I, what feels like the right thing to say or do at a certain time can, on reflection, um, you know, after you've walked out of the room uh, and um, the whiskey, to use your expression, has subsided, you realise it was an absolutely terrible thing to say and do. Whereas uh, if you have um, uh, more of a rational uh, foundation. I'm not, and I'm not arguing for pure rationalism, but I'm saying you need to know where, where you're coming from, and it can't just be what's agreeable. Oh, look, when I give lectures and when I go and talk to to students, I'll often say, look, you know, your emotions are. Well, I'd say they're amoral. You just you have them. It, it mm. Just is what they they are. What they are. But yeah, um, it, it's not enough to be emotive or have mm. emotions. You've got to be able to understand why. Um, mm. And I've certainly find in modern discourse, in general, I mean, we're talking in general terms here, Tim, but a lot of people are very passionate on a topic. Uh, and when mm. I press them to explain why they hold that position, they just shout louder. And it's like, that's not really an argument. Emoting mm. loudly isn't, let's say, a rational argument. But I'd concur with you as well. We don't want to be just sort of um, rational automatons. That would be a bit boring. Well, we wouldn't be human. We'd be something else. So then jumping back to... To Maxim, I mean, again, dialogue seems to underpin a lot of your work. And I know just before your time, there was the philosopher Jeremy Waldron who um, yeah. came and actually came along to the dinner. It was very nice, good food. Um, uh, talking about good civic discourse and that we have to be more civil. So um, yeah. that to me is something which has permeated through Maxim. And I just wonder if you yeah. could just tease out as we come to sort of a towards the end of just, yeah, what would be some of the possibly repeating a little bit of what we've touched on, but sure. what do you yeah. see as the key elements to civil discourse, mm. particularly in New Zealand? Well, I think um, given that uh, uncivil discourse is, is often divisive, destructive, and nihilistic, um, the challenge then as an organisation is to add something to public conversations that is unitive, 
that draws people together, that is generative, that produces something, uh, and and is also hopeful, that looks forward beyond uh, the problem that we're seeing uh, to a horizon that contains hope, uh, because because I think. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot at the moment to make people uh, feel, you know, uh, nihilistic. Like there is, you know, what's the point? Um, well, there is a point, and um, the the point is that we can actually make some of these problems better rather than worse, and we can make them better by thinking well, by engaging well, and by playing the long game, by persisting. So when you find yourself groping for that um, tumbler of whiskey at eleven a.m. Uh, as I'm sure you do, uh, you go. You know what? I'm going to put this well, off. This is how Parliament operates. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to put this off till two thirty when I'm in the select committee, and then maybe we'll have. I might have a better day. Um, just on a, on, a, on a side note, I was um, one of my journalistic heroes was Christopher Hitchens, whom I got to actually interview in person, and he greeted me at noon, containing an Olympic holding, grasping an Olympic pool-sized tumbler of Johnny Walker Black Label, uh, insisting that the consumption of this would help him with his hangover. Um, oh, in, my experience, in my experience, such things uh, don't add up. I've actually been interested in his writings for a while. Actually, I quoted him, I think, last week around the Salman Rusty stuff. He had actually said mm. when the fatwa was imposed uh, mm. that he thought, uh, Hitchens that was, it was sort of the start of a, almost a, the cultural war took around freedom of speech and expression. And I thought actually, personally, I think his prophetic words have come uh, come true. So other than obviously having a t- huge tumbler of whiskey, what's he like? Just as a quick side note, as a personality. Well, was Chris, yeah, he was actually, it was, he was, he was very, very hospitable. He cooked me lunch um, and um, he drank copiously and smoked copiously, but he was of that, um, you know, of, of, of that, Ilk, let's put it that way, the sort of chain-smoking, Fleet Street-style Oxbridge intellectual. Um, but he was wonderful to talk about uh, books with. Uh, but once you got into politics, it's, it was interesting. There was sort of, it just, the knife became a bit blunter. Um, as I, this, and, and believe that I am reflecting on, um, I, I think I did, I may or may not have ingested a couple of glasses of Merlot along with him when he switched from Johnny Walker Black Label to Merlot. But I, I, I remember observing that, that he was great, to, and perhaps it may have been the uh, restorative effects of the Johnny Walker Black Label, but he was. we talked about books first, then politics, uh, and he, the, his thought process with politics, it was, yeah, it was more generalised and not as acute. But when he spoke about books, in a sense he was talking about his experience uh, of the writers that we were discussing, and it seemed it seemed more personal uh, and 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 somehow sharper. Well, I hope this is not too much of a personal observation on myself, but I actually think political life does blunt you, and yeah. it certainly blunted me. I think, and part mm. of it is life is so busy that time to reflect, but also it is very tribal, it's very mm. adversarial, and um, mm. if it's a quick moment of self-reflection, not involving, I'd like to make very, very clear, any Merlot or uh, yeah. whiskey, yeah, the nature of parliamentary and political life does blunt thinking mm. at times. You just got to get on with whatever's in front of you. Yeah, can I ask you a question? How do you how do you sharp? What's what's your Wiltshire stay sharp mechanism then? Um, well, believe it or not, um, uh, reading when I can. 
So I, mm. I very much tried to uh, always have a book of philosophy with me, a book of theology, and uh, then just a, often a history, uh, mm. which I like to uh, read. So and we'll bounce between all uh, all three of them. Uh, and the other is actually friends and family. I probably drive them bonkers, but I love debating and just discussing ideas. Nothing better than just sitting around um, the barbecue and just talking. Uh, and believe it or not, I'm not perjuring myself here. I like to actually listen occasionally. Um, that that's that helps me. But any advice from your your uh, experience? No, I I I, I think that um, what you're describing are reflective moments. And it's uh, uh, the the culture that we have been observing is 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 often not reflective. It's non-reflective at, at a very time when we need uh, reflection. We need to pause. Um, we actually, and, and I think listening is a huge thing. So you've what? got it down. No, listening. No. I said listening. Listening. <laughs> No, it's a, it's a, that's, that, that, that is a, um, and if you don't practice, if you, if you fail to practice that, um, that's, well, I was going to say it's a skill, but it's also a virtue. If you fail to practice that, then you start to, um, you know, the, the voice inside your own head can get louder and louder and, um, that that's deafening. Well, I think part of the, I'm going to use the word narcissistic sort of tendencies in modern society that you are the center of everything, you know, as the individual, does preclude at times listening because theoretically you've got it all sorted out. You are you, you, you know. Um, why need to listen to anyone or pick up on tradition or history? Or in, it's like, oh. Um, yeah, I think, I think tradition and history as well are, are, are great uh, instructions. On, and, and we talk, you know, we were touched talking about unprecedented times, what was proclaimed to be an unprecedented time. Uh, actually, any any reading of history would suggest it was um, perhaps certainly not unprecedented, certainly extraordinary within living memory. Um, but uh, if you start to pull back and go over hundreds of years, thousands of years, it's, it's somewhat unsurprising. And and that gives you a kind of, I think we're also nudging here, the idea of humility, which is like, well, we don't have all the answers. Some of the answers lie in history. Let's have a look and see what they did so we don't make the same mistakes. Yeah, oh, look, it's the old adage, history repeats itself. And as someone who loves history, there's nothing, I hope this doesn't come across as arrogant now, it probably will that I've said it that way, but there's basically very little that's happening in today's world that hasn't happened before. Mm. We've had pandemics, we've had wars, we've had crises, it just repeats itself and the way that often we we react, which coming back really particularly to the research that you guys have done around the the constitutional implications over the last two years is is really critical. I'm not here just to put wind in your sails for the sake of it's really critical because I'll say as an observer and participant in politics here, we've taken damage in the general mm. public. The trust levels have gone down and I mean yeah. that across the whole parliament. Oh, and I, I, I would I would submit too that it's, it's, uh, it's not just parliament, which is an institution, a democratic institution, but also um, media. I would say the trust levels in mainstream and legacy media have declined, um, uh-huh. and 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 and, um, for example, um, an, an institution like the Reserve Bank. Now, other um, other central banks have said, "Oh, you know, we overcooked things," um, but we haven't heard that kind of um, 
let's say, admission or reflection yet. And, and, and there are many economic commentators who are saying, you know, that is the case. So, so one of the things that institutions need to be is somewhat humble and able to, um, to say when, when, we, when we got it wrong, uh, we did get it wrong, and here's what we're going to do to fix it. Well, it comes back to your humility aspect. Look, it's one of the great, great challenges in Parliament too. I find it myself to admit a mistake is so difficult. It, gets, yeah. it does. And even worse, the higher you get up the chain, um, uh, it's, it's one of those, a discussion for another day. Just pulling you back to the last, back to your former profession, if I'm allowed to. Obviously, you um, a writer, um, which is, I must say, very funny stuff. Um, not all of it, of course, because it's not all meant to be human. Um, no. But do you miss elements of, well, are you planning to keep writing? Um, and do you miss elements of journalism? Um, yeah, I, um, I actually, I, do I miss elements? I didn't do a lot of writing stuff down when I was, um, when I was in, in, um, in, moved into broadcast. Um, but, um, but yeah, look, I, I love writing. That's the, that's the thing that, that first attracted me. The reason I got into journalism was, um, and uh, you know, my father, an inveterate reader, had, used to, uh, you know, he had a thousand books lining his study, and he, um, fortunately, he uh, he had a son who uh, liked to do nothing better than to read as well. So reading produced the writing, and um, yeah, I I love it. I was uh, at a university. I was a taxi driver. I wrote a piece for a competition run by Metro Magazine about being a taxi driver, and that's how I got into journalism. Um, yeah. Yeah, so... You're on um, the move in all sorts of ways. Well, I was, you know what, I think I think they gave, they gave me an opportunity and um, they were able to um, to extend that opportunity to work, and that's how I got into um, in, into the trade of journalism. But in terms of writing at the moment, I'm, um, uh, I'm a big fan of poetry. And because we have 3.95 children under seven, uh, I don't get time to write novels anymore. So I write poems, uh, which uh, and 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 they also. I, I, I love I've loved poetry ever since. Um, well, ever since I can remember. So uh, yeah, that's what I write these days. I think it's a gift to someone who appreciates poetry, but would be a disaster to ever try it. I think it well. We'll look forward to that being published. And last question, okay, quickly, quickly, your favourite poet. Go now. Uh, favorite poem is actually probably Dolce oh, to Cora Oh yeah, okay. Wilfred Owen. Yeah, Wilfred Owen. I, I don't know why. I think it's just one of those one of those liminal pieces I read as a, a, a child. The other is James K. Baxter when he talks about uh, National Dad and Labour Mum. I've forgotten the title of it, but um, yeah. a, a wonderful cadence in it, which I've I've always enjoyed. James K. Baxter was, um, you know, he, he I. I love the Jerusalem sonnets and the Jerusalem day book. Um, really. Um, uh, um, yeah. And of course, growing, I grew up in Whanganui. So that was just up, that was just up the river. I used to have a picture of James K. Baxter um, scowling out of a listener cover on the wall of my bedroom uh, when I was growing up as a teenager. So that tells you what a, what a Baxter tragic I was. Oh, he's a remarkable um, figure. My um, son-in-law had a book of his poetry and actually mm. took it over to New York with him recent months, and I was sort oh, of really? a bit taken aback, actually, because, um, well, it's been many, many, many years uh, mm. since Baxter passed on, but, you know, he's still resonating with a, a new generation. But quite seriously, he would have been someone I would have loved to have met. He was so mm. countercultural, um, and 
it's sort of a, a paradoxical man from what I, when I look at his poetry and what I know of his life, that at one level, a man of great certainty is yet wrapped with uncertainty. Mm. Um, fascinating. Yeah. In other, hey, words, in, other words, in other words, completely human. Ooh, nice. And you know what? I think that's a wonderful uh, place to tie this little uh, knot here. Look, Tim, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Look, and thank you for the work um, that you've done, obviously, throughout your whole uh, broadcasting and writing career, but now as the executive director at Maxim. The research you guys do is fantastic. And can I encourage uh, mm-hmm. listeners to check out? It's maxim.org.nz. Look, they write, yes. they do podcasts, they do all sorts of things. So check them out. Yeah, please do. Uh, we'd, uh, and, and, you know, send us a message. We're all about, we'll listen for a bit, then we'll resume shouting at you, I promise. <laughs> Tim, great to have you on. Thanks, Simon.